prestige heads alike this is producer jake instead of our normal news recap this week we are actually doing a special episode because i don't know if you've heard but one daniel bestner has graced the cover of harper's magazine with his groundbreaking well I'm, I'm being like i'm being like facetious but it's actually a really great article empire yeah, it is a fantastic article and also derek decided to, to to take a break this weekend so we're we're very uh, disappointed that he's not here uh, joining us but he's taking a vacation he's taking his uh, allotted 12 hours of vacation that i've given him uh this year so i'm hope i'm hoping he's enjoying it and uh looking forward to him being back as soon as humanly possible yeah we we miss you dearly derek and your updates but for your sanity, thank God you're on, on vacation. So, uh, and Jake, also like I, we've gotten a lot of like you know people really love our voices. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and so I'm really I'm just really glad for all those people who've taken the the, the time, and we just want to say we appreciate it so much at American Prestige to <laughs> tell us how much they hate my voice yeah. and your voice yeah. in particular. I so love thanks, it. thanks a lot, guys. We we hear you. We see you. We hear and we you, you and we thank see you. you and we completely <laughs> ignore you. But but um, yeah, it's great. I get on the mic for about five minutes and already someone's like, what is this voice? <laughs> I, I hate this guy. <laughs> well, this is the brand, folks, in any event. So I'm going to talk to Danny a little bit today about uh, Empire Burlesque. So why don't we get right into it? Let's do it. All right. So you've noted elsewhere that you spent this spring reading what the DC think tanks are saying about the future of U.S. foreign policy and U.S.-China relations. Now, before we get into what you actually found, was there anything else in particular that prompted you to write this piece or to begin that actual research in the first place? Sure. Um, Well, I think there's been periods in U.S. history where people have tried to reconceive the United States' place in the world. Um, You think back to the open door uh, notes of someone like John Hay in the late 19th century, probably most famously George Kennan's long telegram of February 1946, which was later published as the infamous X article in Foreign Affairs. Um, And then in in 1989, something like the end of history, you know, which really tried to reconceive of what the U.S.'s role in the world should be, at least that one was a bit more abstract, but I think it's generally related to the question of U.S. empire. Um, and I'm not putting myself um, necessarily in in that lineage. I mean, those are all like ridiculously classic articles, particularly Kenan and Fukuyama, um, that that really, you know, have a lot to offer. And, and, and time will tell if Empire Burlesque uh, stands up to that. But I did think that we are entering a new moment in geopolitical history, particularly U.S. Um, US history. I just think that the ultimate material basis of the American empire, um, just, it just doesn't exist any longer in the ways that it did in the past. Um, so there was something called, uh, the quote unquote Kennan sweepstakes in the early 1990s, um, where people tried to, you know, be the George Kennan for the post cold war period. But I think from the perspective of 2022, it's pretty clear that the post the quote unquote post cold war period really shared a lot with the cold war. Um, and really what, what it, it shared across sort of 
temporal boundaries was this, this reality of incredible U.S. superpowerdom uh, that the United States um, in 1945 and then the U.S. and its closest allies in 1989, 1991 were just like so much more powerful than everyone else. Um, it, it was just like really ridiculously, uh, it wasn't even a comparison when, when you're thinking about either the collapsing Soviet Union or the, you know, the first years of the Russian Federation or China, you know, the other two really great powers in the world, or one might even add India in, into that equation as well. And just the U.S. and its allies were so much more powerful. And I don't think that's the case. So, you know, I am, uh, as I've said many times on this show before, very influenced by Marx. Um, I'm definitely a Marxist in some sense. Um, and uh, I, I really try to look at the material realities, the material base that, that structures a lot of the phenomena of the political world. And so I've been saying for a long time now, two or three years, that we're entering a new era of geopolitics in which that material base is fundamentally different. Um, so I wanted to basically use that as a jumping off point to see how think tanks in D.C. were approaching this question of American empire, or what they euphemistically call American leadership, um, and particularly the, through the lens of U.S.-China relations. Because even um, regardless of the war in Ukraine, I, I just I just don't think Russia is truly a great power um, any longer. Uh, it occupies kind of a strange position because it does have nuclear weapons, so it has the, that major trapping of a great power, even though not every nation that has nuclear weapons is a great power, but it also has an enormous territory, an enormous population, you know, a, a particular martial history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't think it approaches, at least in 2022, uh, the United States or China and the, its raw, pure power potential. Um, so that's why in this piece, I really focus more on U.S. China than 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 Russia, even though this was written in the wake of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Mm. Yeah, we'll get to China in a second. You actually you uh, very usefully kind of frame this uh, using the term American century, which for lay people such as myself is not the most uh, familiar uh, concept. And you said it comes from this article written by Republican oligarch and publisher Henry Luce. Can you talk a little bit? What is the American century? Sure. So this is this is a, a phrase that's well known to people who study international relations and and di uh, diplomatic history, and also generally to historians of the United States, particularly those of the 20th century. It's kind of entered you know popular discourse in some sense. Sure. But basically, um, before the U.S. entered World War II, uh, I believe it's February 1941. Luce, who was the publisher of Life Magazine, which you know I shuddered. <laughs> I think like um when we were kids. Jake, or maybe even a little before that, but hasn't yeah. been around for a while, but was at one point like the magazine in the United States. Like people across political divisions really read this magazine. So, like, really the mass media of the time. He wrote this very um, well known essay called The American Century, which he argued that the United States needed to assume some form of hegemonic position in the country. He doesn't use those terms, at least I don't remember him using the term hegemony, but he's essentially arguing that world peace and prosperity um, and the prosperity of the United States itself depends on uh, America ruling the world. Uh, and so thereafter, you know, basically foreign policy, particularly after World War II, people would use the phrase the American century as a, <laughs> I hope this is the right word, a synecdoche for, for American global leadership or American, uh, American um, glo global power. Um, and I think that, 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 that moment was premised again on that material basis I talked about. I think in 1945, I have the precise statistics in the article, but the United States controlled something like 
half of all world manufacturing, right? And, and an incredibly powerful um, a nation. And I just think that those material realities don't exist any longer. So I think the American century, as, as Harbour has provocatively put it on the cover, is over. And so what my my um, piece tries to address is what comes next. And I learned recently that there will apparently um, be responses to the piece, which I very much look forward uh, to reading, because obviously it wasn't I didn't write it quite as a polemic, but it is in a bit of a polemical style. So I'm very curious to see who agrees, who disagrees, uh, and whatnot. Now, you also said that this kind of hegemony was not seen before the American century and will not be seen again. Was there really no world hegemon like before the U.S., like even approaching that level of power? I just think it wasn't really possible. Okay. There were there weren't the global capacities. Um, you you know you didn't ha- you didn't have airplanes you know and, and mass sure, production sure. something along those lines. You didn't have um, coming down the pike at least um, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, you didn't have that speed of travel or speed of communication, which would just increase over the course of the 20th century. So that pure form of able to manage a truly global empire just wasn't available to a Rome or an Ottoman Empire or a British Empire, um, which Britain famously ruled by the seas. But it wasn't the type of it just didn't have the capacity to do what the United States did, basically because there was an earlier level of technological development. And, and personally, um, to any historians listening, I think we as a field have really downplayed the importance of technology. I, less true for people in the 19th century, for historians of the 19th century. Um, and obviously, there are always people who do it. But I think like technology does exert a structuring condition on what the United States was able to do after 1945. Um, and I just think that, again, um, do it wasn't only technology, but it was also the peculiar experience of World War II and the United States emerging triumphant from it and sort of the geographical position of the United States that allowed it to be as powerful as it was and as it as it became. And I just don't think those realities hold any longer. Mm. Which I don't think, barring some sort of cataclysm, which could always happen because no one could ever predict the future, I don't think you'll see a hegemon quite like the United States um, again, at least in the next you know 50 years or so. And that's just due to contingency, right? It has nothing to do with the special providential mission of the United States, as, as some yeah. people um, on the right might say. It's just an accident of history. You have these peculiar conditions coming together, you know, large structuring conditions, like I said, technology and global capitalism and more contingent things like World War II all coming together uh, to allow for this very, very unique moment. You say from your research this spring, you found that the D.C. foreign policy establishment, a.k.a. the think tanks, um, has splintered into two, quote-unquote, warring camps, the liberal internationalists and their strainers. Could you briefly define what each ideology is? Sure. And I, I would say there's far more people on the liberal internationalist side, but restrainers have been punching above their institutional weight because it's just so obvious that mm. what has been going on just hasn't worked. Um, so in pure numbers, this is the liberal internationalists by far outstrip the restrainers. Um, but essentially, liberal internationalism is the default ideology of the American establishment, the American foreign policy establishment, the network of both governmental and non-governmental institutions and, and you know people <laughs> navigating those institutions that essentially make and shape U.S. foreign policy, generally confined to the quote-unquote beltway within Washington, D.C. and the Acela Corridor between D.C. and New York slash Boston. But there are, you know, other examples elsewhere on, on the West Coast. One might think of the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica as one of them, but really, you know, in that Acela Corridor. 
And so the default position of many of these people is that the United States should rule the world. Um, now, there are tactical disagreements about what that precisely means. Does that mean alliances? Does that mean going to war sometimes? Uh, does that mean uh, sort of working through international institutions? Um, but even something like neoconservatism would I uh, what uh, is what I would would basically identify as, as a species of liberal internationalism, perhaps a particularly intense one um, that focuses more on unilateralism than multilateralism that emphasizes the importance of, of war and things like that, but is in that sort of camp of liberal internationalism. Um, and I think uh, we could talk about this, uh, its, or, its specific origins, but roughly since World War II, and particularly, you know, I, I think a, a, an important moment in, in political history is when Dwight Eisenhower run the, won the Republican nomination over Robert Taft in the early 1950s. Since that moment, really, it's the default position of people who are considered, quote-unquote, serious in American society. Uh, and that wasn't always the case, but it has been for the entirety of not only uh, our lifetimes, Jake, but for, you know, baby boomers, for for the political leadership of this country, which wasn't true in 1970. In 1970, people could remember, you know, the Peace Progressive Congress of the 1920s or something along those lines. But for everyone operating today, U.S. leadership is just the assumption of geopolitics. Mm. So, like you mentioned, the different camps' uh, approach to the U.S.-China relationship seems to be a useful proxy to see what the basic choice is before the U.S. in this moment regarding foreign policy. So, regarding China, what is the, like, where are the liberal internationalists at? How do they perceive China? How do they think we should manage the U.S.-China relationship? So uh, basically, I think no liberal internationalist desires war with China. You know, you can imagine like um, like a neocon thinking that you really need to to go to war with China, and I think that mm -hmm. that does separate liberal internationalism, uh, this sort of mainstream phenomenon, um, from a neoconservatism. And this is where things get different because, uh, again, like. Uh, at the very top level, neoconservatism, I would say, is a species of liberal internationalism. But then there's also something called liberal internationalism, which is like another subspecies of like the larger category of liberal internationalism. So these are things get get pretty complicated. Um, but so I would say like the liberal internationalists I'm talking about are, are kind of at that lower level, that level of the neoconservative as opposed to sort of the large, you know, Woodrow Wilson liberal internationalism approach. But I would say what what they want is the United States to remain hegemonic in East Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, that they, that they want the United States to be the prime power in East Asia, um, politically and economically. I think less there's less importance uh, laid on culture than there was in the last twenty or thirty years. But basically, politically and economically, uh, economically dominant in East Asia now and into the foreseeable future. That's what liberal internationalists want. Uh, restrainers don't want that for a variety of reasons. I think fundamentally, um, I could speak for myself <laughs> as well as others, uh, perhaps, but that they just don't think that's possible anymore. That the, the material basis of that sort of geopolitical position just and geoeconomic position just no flat out no longer hold. But more. Moreover, and I'll speak more for myself here, I just think from a, almost a philosophical perspective is that people in regions are better able to determine what should happen in their regions than people outside of their region. And so the United States is just not in East Asia in the same way China or Japan or South Korea or the Philippines um, are. And so from a philosophical position, I think that you're more likely to get improvements in international relations over time when people in regions themselves are in control of their fate. Now, what someone critical of this will say, they'll say the only reason there's not war in East Asia is because of the United States' military umbrella. 
And I would say, yes, if the United States does leave, that that will risk um, some some something, but there's risks entailed uh, in anything. For example, the United States stay, that might risk a, a nuclear exchange with China. So you, people just have to determine for themselves what they think is both philosophically and practically um, best for uh, the world. So I'm curious about the role climate change plays or what role you think it will play with respect to these two ideologies. Right. So, so that is, I think, like one of the major restraint positions, and I would, which I certainly hold, is that that climate change is like a first order concern, mm-hmm. um, and that you're going to need, uh, you know, if you're thinking from the perspective of the United States, and I'm a citizen of the United States, and I'm operating within the United States, that is the perspective I think of because we don't live in a world of leftist internationalism, um, even though I wish it were different. Um, I, I think that that's a first order concern, and you're going to have to deal with China to uh, in like a real way. And I think the U.S. trying to remain hegemonic in East Asia prevents the sorts of necessary cooperation that we do need to um, engage in with China to, uh, <laughs> I guess, arrest, that doesn't really seem possible, but uh, effectively mitigate the potentially disastrous effects of climate change. It seems like the little that I know that we're, we're past the moment of arrest and reverse and more, which has um, <laughs> come a buzzword recently, like resilience, which has a lot of problems with it. I've actually written an article with Matt Spark about the problem of the framing of resilience. But um, I think we just need to basically center climate, which is why it's so great that the Supreme Court <laughs> has helped strip the EPA uh, yes. of its power today. Good job, guys. <laughs> uh, at one point in the article, you cite evidence that China in no way wants to supplant America as the global hegemon. And among that evidence you cite is that its foreign uh, development aid is not linked to a recipient country's politics. I found that point uh, pretty interesting. Like, could you talk a little bit more about that? How can like a nation state be strategic in where it puts its foreign development aid without it being linked to a recipient country's politics? So, for example, it's not like China is only doing like Belt and Road Initiative or was only doing mm-hmm. Belt and Road Initiative stuff with like quote unquote authoritarian capitalist regimes, mm-hmm. right? China is is wanting to expand its national base of power, um, its 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 its, its private base and also its public base throughout the world. So it's not like I, it's something you hear sometimes from the liberal internationalist camp is like there's this great ide- ideological struggle between the United States and China uh, that mirrors what was happening with between the United States and Soviet Union. I just don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Soviet Union was not going to, <laughs> or, you know, it, it did at certain moments, but like it wasn't going to be a policy to fund capitalist countries, right? That, 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 that they, they were contributing to wars of national, what they called wars of national liberation and things like that. That's not true of China. China doesn't care. China is working with all types of countries for all different types of reasons, which to me suggests that the Chinese uh, political elite is not necessarily bent on this ideological struggle that some Americans uh, identify. Um, So that's basically what I was trying to get at at, at there. Interesting. So let's talk about the people, the American people, the demos, as you like. I, I love it when you use those Greek <laughs> academic words. In the article, you know, that two transformational events have occurred in recent years, Trump's election and China's ascension, Um, obviously on very different timelines. Um, Fast forward to a 2020 Pew poll you cite, which said that 91% of Americans believe the world is better off with the U.S. as its leading power, up from 88% in 2018. So that's pretty shocking to a little coastal elite like myself, I would have thought, despite, you know, historical revisionism, you know, whatever, manufacturing consent in the media, 
propaganda in general, that there would be a little more healthy skepticism in this arena. What do you think accounts for this uptick in support? Do you think uh, Trump and the ascension of China played a substantial role in all this? Yeah, well, well, it's it's interesting because I do think, as as I talk about elsewhere in the paper, there is a difference in generations. But I uh, I think it's more just related to the fact that empire is the air Americans breathe and it's the water that they swim in. They particularly today they just don't know any other world. Ninety nine point nine percent of people who are alive in this country have only lived under American hegemony, so they just think that the natural order of things is for the United States to govern the world. I don't think there's necessarily a proximate cause between that. You know, it's just ironic that in you know the era of Trump, the era of everyone sort of saying like, oh no, what does it say about the United States? People actually thought the United States should do more. I mean, more people thought the United States should, (laughs) should, should quote unquote lead the world. And I think that just speaks to a general solipsism, uh, not really only of Americans, but of the imperial metropole generally that you see throughout history. You know, if you're talking about 19th century Britain, you know, 19th century Britons also think that Britain should rule the world. This isn't exactly a new, uh, a new datum in the, in the history of empire. Um, but that's what I related to more than anything else. Hmm. Interesting. Do you like, do you see, speaking of technology, do you see, I mean, a technological reason, you know, the proliferation of social media and, you know, so-called information disinformation that people are living in, you know, quote unquote, different realities. Well, well it's, it, yeah. it's interesting because on, on some level, Yes, of course, people who watch MSNBC and people who watch CNN and people who watch Fox News are living in quote-unquote different realities, but on a somewhat fundamental level, there's a lot of agreement about uh, things like American empire and global capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that we need to disaggregate when we're talking about like disinformation and, sure. and different realities. That's true for some things, and I, I think it's not true for others, particularly what I would call like the larger structuring conditions of life. Um, it's not true for there's actually quite a bit of shared assumptions between the red states and the blue states, even though it's reflected in different cultural predilections, it's re- you, different languages used, there are different logics to arrive at similar conclusions, but nonetheless, the conclusions are similar. Hmm. So how about you yourself? You mentioned earlier that you consider your, uh, yourself a Marxist or informed by Marxism to an extent, but you also in the article con- uh, consider yourself falling into the restrainer camp. I'm just curious um, if you put any thought to how maybe the idea of um, falling into the camp of restrainer squares with your Marxist beliefs. Is it Are your Marxist beliefs kind of just like a North Star, a guiding light that you kind of always have there? I'm just curious if you saw any relation there. Yeah, well, I mean, I I think that, like... I, I always try to look at the material sources of things. Um, I mean, I'm not a vulgar-based superstructure Marxist by any stretch. I, I do think the superstructure shapes material realities, and I think that they work together in sort of an, an integrated fashion, and uh, things one informs the other, um, and vice vice versa. But I think it would be more the political Marxism, right? Like the critique could be: Why are you operating in the idiom of the nation state? Why are you even taking the United States? as sort of the, this this real political actor, um, whereas opposed to the international working class is, is where political action should be should be identified, right? Um, let alone uh, an avowedly Marxist country. So something along those lines. So what I would say is just that my, and people might disagree with this, I would just say my particular reading of history in 2022 is that we live in a world of nation states, that nation state is really the container of, of historical action, um, even if I wish it were otherwise, um, and that given that reality, uh, and given my own subject position as a privileged person within the United States polity, um, that I'm speaking primarily in this article to um, Americans. Because I think that's where the change um, 
that's where we will need to make the change in order to build the, uh, to construct the world that I want to build, which is a much more integrated world fil- um, filled with much less inequality, both within countries um, and between countries, and particularly between the global north and the global south. I mean, when people look at, look at this period of history in the last in, in a thousand years, I'll really read, you know, 1492 uh, to, you know, question mark as this one period where the global north really rapaciously seized materials and assets from the, from the global south. And that's the fundamental structuring condition. Uh, and if I think we want to change that, that change, at least, you know, or at least how I can contribute myself to that change is by making the government that in which I have voice act differently. Uh, and that's not only to restrain, but I've been getting, and I, I, get, I actually use this phrase at the end of the article, but also we need to reduce American power. We need to allow other countries to develop their own capacities, because I think that will be the first step on the path toward building the type of um, world that I want to, that I would want to see, which as a humanist is ultimately, you know, a sort of people living together in harmony in sort of a, a, a utopian political project that encompasses all of us. So, basic question of the article is, taking into account the waning of the American century, what will this produce? You just noted um, a few questions ago that the restrainers are far outnumbered, and it seems by that, if we're going by that poll, way outnumbered by uh, liberal internationalists. What do you think, well, I'm trying to, hmm. Well, I think I, I think I know what you're saying. I think there's two approaches. There's the mass education approach, mm-hmm. which is sort of the generational project of of sorting uh, of trying to use various means, technological, media, whatever, to quote unquote educate um, ordinary Americans about what their quote unquote true interests lie. And there's there's the Leninist vanguard approach, mm-hmm. um, and that's you know sort of uh, move through the institutions of U.S. foreign policy making. Um, and in some sense, I think both approaches should be used. Um, I think U.S. foreign policy making is a very restricted sphere. There's really not that many people that shape and make it. So uh, a cadre Leninist type strategy um, could be especially useful. And it's actually interesting that, like, the, over the last seventy years in U.S. history, the Leninist uh, strategy has been adopted far more by the right hmm. uh, than the left. Often consciously building off left wing Marxist and anarchist antecedents. I, I wrote about this a bit in a piece I wrote years ago, eight years ago or so, on Murray Rothbard. Um, but I think like that could actually work in foreign policy because it's such a restricted domain. And then I think, but for anything to work, both from a philosophical point as legitimate, but also to last over time, that has to be undergirded by is sort of a mass educational project where people agree with the reduction and restraint of, with the restraint and reduction of American power. So I think those two projects have to be have to be gone uh, be pursued in in tandem because ultimately I, I am a democratic socialist and things are supposed to have a democratic basis. So let's talk. So let's zoom in on one aspect you just talked about, which was the education piece. What are the first steps to make that happen? Do we do this through the private sector, the public sphere? Is this um, something we use public institutions for? But this institutional basis doesn't exist anymore, which is which is why you need to sort of pursue the cadre focused strategy, which I've written about in the past. Um, because I mean the the. the the, the left um, has has been riven in the United mm-hmm. States, particularly in the last hundred years, oftentimes uh, because of the U.S. government <laughs> very consciously taking efforts 
to destroy the um, the American left. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're, this is this is why it's ironic to me, at least, that that oftentimes people online and and you know that doesn't always mean anything. Like talk about revolution and things like that. We don't even have like very basic left wing institutions. You know, not everyone knows about unions. We don't. Not only don't have unions, we don't have like educational spaces, yeah. bowling leagues, theaters, um, spaces for for people to live. You know, a, a life within within the left in a, in a meaningful way. Everyone's bowling alone. So I th- I think it's a, it's at the very least a generational project, whether it's even able to be pursued at all or, mm-hmm. or achieved at all, and it might not be able to be achieved. But again, people, you know. You pursue projects that might that 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 might fail um, because they're the right things to pursue, and 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 it starts, I think, with building like like building communities and building solidarities. The problem is, is that capital has extremely effectively destroyed almost every solidarity upon which things like unionization relied. You know, people are gig workers, people are exhausted, people are uh, working more and getting paid less, and so it's very very difficult to do. And I always, oftentimes joke like when the left doesn't know what to say, it says organize. Um, you know, and I think that that's that that's where we are. And I think there's a general unwillingness to think strategically. I know oftentimes I get criticized as being blackpilled or whatever, but I really don't consider myself that. Maybe I'm wrong. Obviously, I, I am myself, so I'm not going to be able to be purely objective about that. But I just think it's important to take a realistic view of the situation. And the less is incredibly weak and capital is just incredibly strong. You know, we're not in late capitalism. There's nothing late about it. It's not on the verge of being overturned. To put it simply, are you optimistic? For instance, you noted that there is a huge generational disparity between the younger generations and older generations when it comes to um, when it comes to liberal internationalism versus restraint. The younger favoring the latter, the older favoring the former. So, do you find any optimism in this? TBD. You know, people, things are moving in the right direction. Um, I think it's difficult for people who never lived in a world where they like truly believed in American military power to all of a sudden believe in American military power. You know, I was born in the mid-1980s and like even for my entire adult Mm -hmm. political consciousness now, it's just been failure after failure. Um, You know, it's not the rebuilding of Western Europe that people can point to. It's Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, et cetera, et cetera, where we all know the doxology. Um, So I just think that that'll naturally um, wane over time. The problem is, is that very consciously after World War II, uh, the U.S. foreign policy establishment created a, a system of power that essentially didn't need public input, um, that didn't need the public to agree with anything. So, and I think this is true in a lot of our politics. You know, we could just see it with the Senate and Supreme Court, right? Public opinion doesn't matter to a lot of these elite institutions, which I argue is actually a foundational commitment of 19th century liberalism: is separating the elite from the mass and, and acting in the name of the mass as opposed to relying on the mass for input and advice. And so, foreign policy is just another instantiation of this much larger political trend that defines American quote-unquote democracy. Well, Danny, thank you for sitting and taking the time to talk about your article a bit. Everyone, check it out. It's in the most recent Harper's Empire Burlesque. Also, if you're interested in the first days of the American century and the sudden term to armed primacy, listen to our first episode, episode number one with Stephen Wertheim. He actually coined the term armed primacy, so a little fun fact there. Also, finally, 
Danny is actually really looking for feedback. He's really excited to hear from you all about the article. So he's going to be keeping his eye on the comments. Yeah, I'll be checking the comments. I'll be reading the... Everyone says don't read the comments, but I'm going to be reading the comments this weekend. So Danny lives you know, for the people, comments. I live for the, com- I live for the comms. <laughs> so if anyone wants to post, I'd love to get your take, including criticism. I could take it. But um, please do, and I'd, I'd, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll gen- genuinely try to respond. Let us know what you think. As always, check out our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. And check out our June Mailbag episode. Tomorrow, Saturday, we will be putting it out, and we will be back to our regular programming next week. Thank you, as always. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake.